Well, good morning, Summit family. If you have your Bibles, I want you to meet me in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. As you're making your way there, uh, our family got here almost uh, uh, two years to the day ago. So this is our first real time uh, in the triangle experiencing the fullness of March Madness. And uh, Duke in North Carolina, I won't tell you which side I'm on, which is the kingdom of darkness or which is the kingdom of, uh, of light won't go there. I will tell you this. Uh, I asked uh, one of one of you all, I said, um, what school did you go to? And they said, oh, NC State, and man, we're diehard. And I said, well, what are y'all good at? And they looked at me and said, hope. We are, <laughs> we are good. We are absolutely, absolutely good at hope. Someone back there, go Wolfpack. I love it. Absolutely love it. Paul says this, beginning in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he says, Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. And our brother, Sosthenes, let me stop you right there, just believe Sosthenes, we do know this, uh, was, was a ruler of the synagogue there in Corinth. Paul comes to town. Many church historians tell us that this ruler of the synagogue now gets converted to the faith and is a part of the church. To the church of God, verse 2, that is in Corinth. To those, make note of this word, sanctified in Christ Jesus. Called to be, as a Falcons fan, I hate to say this word, saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you. Why? Because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. That in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end. Guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Father, would you speak a word? It's pretty daunting to think, Lord God, in a, in a crowd this size, just the vast experiences we've had this week. It is beyond my capacity. It is beyond my pay grade. I, I can't get to the hearts and the needs of these people. But your word and your spirit can. So I hold you, Lord God, to your promise that your word will not return void. It won't return empty. It will do exactly what you said it would do. So, Father, would the seed of your word fall on good ground? Would it produce great fruit? Use me, I pray, in Jesus' name, amen. In 1883, there was a guy by the name of Horace Wilcox. He was a Jesus-loving man from the Midwest, who moved his family out to Southern California. He, he bought a parcel of land just north of downtown Los Angeles. As a Jesus-loving man, he had a vision for this piece of land. Uh, he, he imagined that it would be a place where Christians would, would gather in rich and deep and intimate community with one another and would transform their culture for the glory of God. True story. He was so passionate about this that he actually took uh, parcels of the land that he purchased, again, just north of downtown Los Angeles, and he gave it away to denominations 
in his hopes of starting a church planting movement that again would, would galvanize together and would change their world for the glory of Christ. You may wonder what he decided to name that parcel of land that he hoped would be this incredible, rich, gospel-centered, and saturated community. Oh, he left that up to his wife to name, and she decided to name this place after her favorite Midwestern estate, an estate named Hollywood. That's right. Hollywood, we, we have come to know so well, originally was supposed to be the place that transformed the world for the glory of God. Let's just say it fell short of its founder's vision. Paul knows the disappointment of having a vision for something that is not living up to reality. Several years before he sits down to to write this letter, to pin this letter to the Corinthians, Paul uh, walks into Corinth. He has a vision that the, the gospel would take root, that people from all walks of life would come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that this gospel community would be a rich witness to a lost and dying world. And sure enough, he sees this begin to happen in its embryonic stages and, and phases. People come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. The gospel is transgressing ethnic lines as both Jews and Greeks are coming together under the lordship of Christ. And yet he gets a report, verse 10 of chapter 1, from Chloe's house some years later that things are not going well. They are falling short of their vision. They are a church that is divided. They are a church that is at each other's throats. They are a church that is steeped and engrossed in the immorality. How does Paul respond? He responds in a very paradoxical way. In light of all the mess that the church at Corinth is going through, he, he tells them in verse 4, this is astounding, I give thanks to my God always for you. Unreal. He's originally writing in a language called Greek, and the Greek word translated as multiple English words, I give thanks, is the Greek word eucharisto, from which we get such English words as eucharist from. It, it, it means to express gratitude. It, it means to express appreciation. Paul is saying to this church, I, I'm grateful for you. Really, Paul? I mean, need I remind you, this is a church, chapter 3, that, that you say is living according to the flesh. They're living in carnality, and yet Paul says, I'm thankful for you. In chapter 5, he says, there's one of you, you're sleeping with your stepmother, but I'm thankful for you. In chapter 6, he talks about them dragging each other to court, and yet he says, I'm thankful for you. Chapters 8 and 9, they're at each other's throats, dividing over, over little things like food offered to idols, and yet Paul says... I'm thankful for you. In chapter 11, they're making a mockery of the Lord's Supper, and yet Paul says, I'm thankful for you. In chapter 12 and 14, here they are taking God's gifts and not using them for the glory of God or for, or for the edification of his people. They're using them in a very selfish, narcissistic way, and yet Paul says, I'm thankful for you. If you get nothing else I say, Paul is looking at a community of faith that has fallen well short of the vision that God has for them. And Paul says, when he says, I give thanks to my God always for you, it is his way of saying, I ain't tapping out on you, church. I'm doubling down on my commitment for you. I am going to lean in and not look for the exits 
oh, this is a word we need today. Church of Jesus Christ, the big church in America, just like the church at Corinth, uh, excuse my uh, theologically sophisticated language, we're a hot mess. Last couple of years with all of the pressure that has mounted uh, in our culture and man, uh, uh, political kind of infighting and racial infighting and cultural infighting, a lot of people have looked for the exits. A lot of people have tapped out a lot of people said, I can't do this anymore. In fact, I remember at the height of the pandemic, consulting with one church back east, and they'd lost over a third of their staff because of, of the division that was happening. I worked with another church. Over a 1,000 people had tapped out. We're in this era where people are talking about deconstructing. Now, I understand that word deconstruction has wonderful good things about it. The Christian faith should be deconstructed from Christian nationalism. There are some certain good things we should deconstruct. But a lot of people are, are going for the exits, and they're saying, I'm spiritual, just not religious. It's like me saying, I'm married, but I ain't coming home. That ain't going to work. This is not a time to tap out. It's a time to double down. That's exactly what Paul is getting at here in our text. I, th this hit me recently. I, I was in Florida a couple weeks ago um, having some vacation. I was so excited to get there because one of my best friends in the world, uh, we'd gone back to Faithful Central Days, a little church we met at uh, back in the 90s. We were in a small group together. We, we were growing in our faith together. I still remember Sunday afternoons in our small group of which this one person was a part. And from two to four, we'd meet and just very vulnerable and getting into each other's lives and growing in our faith. He would even serve in leadership in that church. And so here I am, I land, he picks me up, we, we, we grab a bite to eat. He just moved to Florida, maybe about six months before from Southern California. So I, I, I asked him, okay, man, have you found a church and what, what's going on? And he just kind of paused. He says, I can't do church anymore. Went on to say, I, I, I don't even know if I can do Christianity anymore. He's tapped out. I understand, parenthetically, I'm a pastor, so right now this can sound very self-serving, right? I can come across this whole idea of why we should double down on church can sound very self-serving, but need I remind you, it's not me saying we should double down, it is Paul and the authority of scriptures saying we should double down. If ever there was a time to renew our commitment to the bride of Christ, it's now. Brian, why should we double down on church? Panning out in the 757, flying over scripture at a 35,000 foot view, why should I double down? Because the message of the Bible is a very un-American message. It is God works through we's, not me's. The primary way in which God has always worked in redemptive history to advance his agenda is not through individuals as much as it is a collective community under his lordship. In the old covenant, it is the people of God known as the nation of Israel 
I love what Tom Nelson says. All believers should be able to palm their Bibles. And the best way to palm your Bible in the Old Testament is the Abrahamic covenant, Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. God shows up to Abraham and he says, I'm going to bless those that bless you and curse those that curse you. And through you, Abraham, all the nations of the world will be blessed. God is saying, here's my agenda. I want to reach the world for my glory and fame, but I'm going to do it through a certain people group known as the nation of Israel. So the rest of the, of the Old Testament, even on into the New Testament, is an unfolding of the Abrahamic covenant. I mean, that's why the story of Joseph later on in the book of Genesis is so key. It's an unfolding of the Abrahamic covenant. Here is God. He's taking a Jew, Joseph, who is helping to steer the most powerful nation in all the world through a famine. The whole world seeks an audience with Joseph. This is the Abrahamic covenant in real time. This is the story of Daniel with Nebuchadnezzar. And because of Daniel, Daniel's relationship with this Gentile king. He comes to faith in God, worships God in Daniel chapter 5. And of course, the ultimate illustration of the Abrahamic covenant is the ultimate God-Jew, Jesus, who dies on a cross so that the world may have a relationship with God. Now in the new covenant, there's a shift. God now says, I'm calling an audible. We're not just going to work through um, one ethnic group, the nation of Israel. Now I'm going to work through my church, the coming together of Jews and Gentiles to advance my purposes here. That is why I want you to understand it's very important, this one small phrase, you don't need to spend a day in seminary to figure this out. Paul says in verse two in our text that I'm addressing this, watch it now, not to you, the individual, but to the church of God. God is speaking, God is moving through a collective body of people. Now hear me, does God use, use me's in the Bible? Absolutely but he always uses them in context within the framework of a greater collective of people. So why should I double down on church? Because God has chosen to use the church, as we like to say around here, as his plan A in the world. Now, this is very hard for some of us, and maybe we have friends who, who again, say this whole idea that I'm, I'm spiritual, just not religious. And the reason why they say that is in, in the American psyche, there's an individual who lives inside of our heads. You've never heard of this person, chances are. He was a Puritan by the name of Roger Williams. Roger Williams uh, was a part of this whole uh, experiment of taking the church, disentangling it from the state over there in England, coming to the United States, States, and the Puritans wanted to see the church in its purest form. But the problem with Roger Williams is he gets over here and and man, this whole thing of church starts to get a little messy. He decides to leave this Puritan church and he decides to plant his own church, uh, what we would today call modern day Rhode Island. So he plants this church, but, but problems arise there. And so he goes, man, I'm just gonna leave here and I'm gonna start the perfect church over here. So he plants a church over here, but problems start there and he leaves that church and goes somewhere else. In fact, if you just look at the life of Roger Williams, his, his cycle is this way. Read the New Testament carefully. Two, discover the glories of what church should be. Three, plant a new church. Four, get discouraged. Five, leave church. Six, start the cycle all over again. Dietrich Bonhoeffer points to Roger Williams' problem. 
This amazing book, Life Together, Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, those who love their dream of a Christian community more than the Christian community itself become destroyers of that Christian community, even though their personal intentions may ever be so honest, earnest, and sacrificial. Roger Williams goes to his grave discouraged because he loved the ideal more than the real. And that's some of our problems, isn't it? That's exactly some of our problems. We come into this place with rose-colored glasses, assuming perfection, not realizing that we are all people in process, not realizing that, that we are sinners. That's why I love what Scott McKnight says in his wonderful book, The Fellowship of Difference, the church is a hospital for sinners, not a retirement center for the perfect. So why should I double down on church? One, it's because this is a place God is using as his plan A, but it is an imperfect place that is in process. But there's a second reason. Fasten your seatbelts, we won't necessarily like this, but in verse five, Paul says again, he's not talking to an individual, he's talking to the local church at Corinth. What does he say to the local church in Corinth? He says that in every way, church, you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, verse seven, so that you are not lacking in any gift. What is he saying here? The idea of the word, the phrase, you were enriched, it, it means to be made wealthy. In other words, Paul is saying everything that you need to flourish, God has deposited not so much in you, the individual, but in a collection of yous known as the local church. He then talks about spiritual gifts. That's what he talks about in all speech, in all knowledge. These were the two gifts that the Corinthians were most fixated on, the gift of tongue, speech, and the gift of prophecy. And he goes on to say, in, 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 in every gift, in other words, and later on in chapters 12 and 14, he talks about spiritual gifts and he uses the analogy of the body. And he says, no part of the body can look at the whole and say, I don't need you. Here's what he's saying. Completely un-American. Why in the world should I double down on church? Paul's answer is because everything you need to flourish and live the Christian life to the maximum is not so much found in you, the individual, but it is found in a collection of individuals known as the church. Thank you, one person. So show me anybody who says, I don't need the church the local body of believers, and I will show you someone who is cutting themselves off from all that God has for them. Oh, I'm thinking about my little church, south side of Atlanta, Berean Bible Baptist Church. You've never heard of it. Why would you? It, it, it ain't grand. Small little church. You know who my first Bible professor was, age of five? Sister Odessa Conley, I know you've never heard of her. She hadn't written a book. You would never hear of her, but she showed up every single Sunday, bivocational, dear woman of God, loved the scriptures, doubled down on church. She taught me the word. Thinking after Sunday school, we would hope to run into Brother Fussell. He was a mailman, 
double down on church, gifts of hospitality. He'd give us little, little, little peppermints. We thought it was just the most wonderful thing in the world. Put little peppermints in our hands and just have a smile on his face. And, and if it was your birthday, you were doubly excited because couldn't nobody cook like Brother Fussell. One of his strawberry cakes. Oh, don't die and go to heaven without getting one of his strawberry cakes. See, gifts of hospitality. I'd walk past Brother Ulysses. I see him there, one of the ushers. Um, he, he, there was a table next to him, and he would, with one hand, grab the bulletins and hand them out to people. He, he didn't have two arms. One of his arms got blown off in Vietnam, but he showed up every Sunday with a smile on his face. To this day, when I go through hard times, I, I see Brother Ulysses' face. Showing up, faithful, one arm, smile on his face. See, Brother Smith, he played the Hammond B3 organ, a staple in the chocolate church. I knew, by the way, Summit Church was serious about ethnic unity when I saw the Hammond B3 organ. Oh, y'all serious around here. <laughs> I, I would see Brother Smith every single Sunday. He was a band director at Mays High School, but showing up, using his gifts, I, I can hear Sister Fussell in the choir stand singing Brother Fussell's wife. And man, her voice so angelic. And if you came discouraged or down, your spirit was, was uplifted just hearing it. I guess the picture I'm trying to paint is if you have ever been blessed by my ministry, it is because what was deposited in me by a group of people you would never know who doubled down on church. In the church of Jesus Christ, there are no insignificant people. We all have gifts, and you never know who you are shaping and influencing for a time you will not see. Why should I double down on church? Because God has deposited everything in there that I need. Now, how do I double down on church? I've got two points and we're done. I know great preachers use three, but I'm going to give you two this morning. How do I double down on church? Again, verse two, look at it with me. He says, to the church of God that is in Corinth, and then make note of this phrase, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. The idea of the word sanctified, hear it now, it simply means to be set apart. It is the idea of someone reaching down into a collection of something, taking a few things out of it, and then putting it to the side, setting it apart. It's in what we would call the aorist tense. The closest thing that we have to it in English is the past tense. Here's what he's saying. He's not talking to the individual, though it's true of the individual. He's talking to a collective of individuals known as the church. He says, when you got saved, God, God reached down into the world, picked you out, and set you apart. In, in other words, you are different. You are dedicated unto him. You are holy. It's sort of like what happened at my Nana's house and her china cabinet. Remember china cabinets? China cabinets is where you put set-apart stuff. China cabinets is, is where you put the special 
stuff. My, my, my nan in her kitchen, she had common everyday cups and, and plates. You, you use those common cups and plates when you are watching the ball game in the kitchen. But, but on Sunday afternoons, Lord have mercy, my, my, my nana would cook. She would put her foot in that food. Uh, that's a metaphor, not being literal there. She, she, would, she, would, she would show enough cook, and we would sit down there in not the kitchen, in the dining room, and she would reach into the china cabinet and grab the stuff that had been set apart. Paul is saying, church at Corinth, one of my problems I have with you is you're acting worldly and you don't realize that when God saved you, he reached down and put you in his china cabinet. He set you apart, but you're acting common. I've set you apart. No, that doesn't mean we get to act as if we're, we're, we're superior to others. That, didn't, that doesn't give us license to, to, to be prideful because remember, who set you apart is not you. It's not your good choices. It's not your good decisions. It's not your morality. Who set you apart is Christ. You're set apart, he says, sanctified in Christ. In order to have a healthy, robust understanding of sanctification, we have to understand that there are three tenses of salvation. Uh, th there, is, there is salvation past. We know this as justification. It's the idea when I came to faith in Jesus Christ, when I responded to his divine initiative in my life, I was justified. One-time act, completed, declared, declared, declared righteous. But then there's future tense salvation. It's glorification where I will be given a new body parenthetically. Please let it have a faster metabolism. I will be given a new body, glorified, without spot or wrinkle, Ephesians chapter 5 says, or any such thing. In fact, our text deals with future tense salvation when he says, we will be guiltless, literally in the Greek, without accusation. But the problem is the messy middle. Present tense salvation. That's why Paul would tell the Philippians, work out, work out, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to do according to his own good pleasure. Present tense salvation is the process by in which I am becoming what God in Christ has already declared me to be sanctified. It's present tense. I, 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 I got a buddy of mine. After several decades of marriage, his wife died, and he's back on the dating scene. I said, man, how's it going? He goes, man, praise God for technology, but there's a problem. He says, I'm doing this online dating thing, man, and, and I show up to meet these wonderful young ladies at coffee or dinner or whatever, and they look nothing like their picture. <laughs> By the way, I'm not ragging on ladies. It's even more so for men, but he says, that's the problem. And that's exactly what Paul is saying to the church at Corinth. You look nothing like your picture. You're not even trying. Present tense sanctification. Now, now hear me. What does this all have to do with doubling down? Present tense salvation, sanctification, I do not believe we will ever reach on this side of glory a state of perfection. We are in process. That's why we used to sing a little song in my church growing up, written by the king of gospel, James Cleveland. Please be patient with me. God is not through with me yet. 
We're in process. So anyone who says, I'm done with church, I, I, I'm giving up on the people of God, it's too messy, it's too much, has a thin and weak theology of sanctification. When we understand we are a group of people who are in process, that now positions me to be patient with you. Of course you're going to say things that I don't like. You're a sinner. Of course I'm going to say things that you don't like and offend you. I'm a sinner. Of course, out of emotion, there will be times we hop on social media and say things we shouldn't. I'm not giving license to that. We are sinners. And a robust sanctification is patience. That's why I love our G4 groups here. Our G4 groups are, are groups where we allow people to process, process addictions, process stuff. Because the church is a hospital for sinners, not a retirement center for the perfect. There's something else as we close. What does it look like? How do I double down on church? I double down when we are patient with others, but secondly and finally, we double down when we extend grace. Paul is able to say in verse four, you you wanna know how I'm able to give thanks to God for you in spite of all your mess? He says, it is because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. So I'm able to give thanks I'm able to double down, not just because I have a healthy theology of sanctification, but along with that, I understand the nature of grace. Now, here's our problem. Our problem is we tend to be way more gracious with ourselves than with other people. We are... We are promiscuous when it comes to grace for ourselves, but stingy and celibate when it comes to extending grace to others. Psychiatrists actually have a term for this. It's called fundamental attribution error. Fundamental attribution error happens when I ascribe to you and your behavior as being character issues. But when I do the same thing, I justify it by being circumstances. Let me give you an example of this. Uh, when I'm late to work, it's, it's because, man, uh, um, you know, there's a lot going on in my house and there's emergency with the kids and I ran into traffic on the freeway and circumstances. But when you're late to work, lazy. No good. Character issues. And I think we just do that in general. Fundamental attribution error. We, we are promiscuous at extending grace to ourselves, but celibate when it comes to extending grace to others. The other problem, I think, when it comes to grace is many of us have a theology of short story grace and not full story grace. Short story grace simply means that, man, I, I, I was a sinner, I was, I was a wretch, Praise God, he saved me. Yes and amen, yes and amen, yes and amen. That's not full story, Grace. 
Short story grace stops at what God saved me from. Full story grace goes, what God has saved me to. Yes, I'm a wretch and I'm a sinner and he saved me from that. But grace continues in that he calls me into intimate relationship and fellowship with him. That's why Philip Yancey would say the three most powerful three-word phrases in the English language are, I love you, I forgive you, what's for dinner? Full story grace is what's for dinner. Now, how does that relate to doubling down on church? If you say something, let's just say racially insensitive to me, instead of me going cancel culture on you, what does it look like for me to say, hey, can we get coffee? Can we have dinner? I do something that offends you. Instead of just kind of gossiping about me, what does it look like to take a step towards me like God in Christ does for us every single day and say, come, I'm not looking for the exits. I'm not tapping out. I'm doubling down. One British scholar has noted that the early church on average had about 30 people. And it would be comprised, of course, they met in houses. It would be comprised of the owner of the house who had a lot of financial means and his family, their servants, their slaves, any tenants maybe who were renting rooms from them. But it would also include a couple of single ladies. Many times these single ladies had, in their past prior to Christ, served as prostitutes. On top of that, you had homeless people. On top of that, you had many Jews who had come to faith in Jesus Christ, and these Jews had come from very moral backgrounds. On the one hand, we go, man, what, what rich diversity, class diversity, cultural diversity, ethnic diversity. You also talk about what, what a place that's just rife for division. As Paul is writing this church, which probably fit that bill, I can imagine maybe he felt a little discouragement. But then he realizes something, that, that this is God's work. And then he pins these words, God's going to sustain you. This ship ain't going down. God is faithful. And what he starts, he finishes. My favorite stories comes from World War II. It's, it's a guy by the name of Elgin Staples. He was embroiled in a battle. He was on the Navy ship, the Astoria. And long story short, they took some severe hits. The, the ship sank. As it was sinking, Elgin got shot in his legs, was thrust overboard. Praise God, he had his life belt. The life belt mechanism triggered. And here he is it, He's floating in the sea because of this life belt. He's being preserved, and for hours he's in the sea, and he's waiting to be rescued. And during those hours, he's looking at this life belt meticulously. Finally, he's rescued, and, and he ends up going back home to Akron, Ohio, and he sits down and he talks with his mom. And his mom is asking him the story, and, 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 and he's telling her, and she's really interested because Elgin's mother actually works at the Firestone plant in Akron, Ohio that manufactured life belts. 
So Elgin's telling his mom the story. He goes, but I just got to tell you, you know, I'm looking at this life belt, and, I, and, and there's a series of numbers on there. What, what's up with the numbers? His mom says, oh, oh, that's simple. The U.S. government is very adamant and meticulous about accountability. And so they assign each inspector of the life belt a set of numbers to ensure accountability. If something goes wrong, uh, uh, my job is held in question. And, and then just kind of randomly, Elgin's mom said, do you remember the numbers on your life belt? Elgin goes, do I remember? Of course. I study this thing meticulously. And he just rattles them off. She stops. She says, can, can you tell me those numbers again? And he rattles them off again. And she says, son, those numbers are my numbers. I made that life belt. I inspected that life belt. Isn't it interesting that the one who brought him into the world, the one who created him, is the one who sustained him. Summit Church, I know we're coming out of a period of so much strife and so much mess in America, but I want you to understand God's serial numbers are on our church. He got this thing started and he will sustain it. In the meantime, in the in-between time, may we by the power of the spirit of God look like our picture. What's true of the local church, friends? It is true of us as individuals. God is going to sustain us. That he who began the good work will be faithful to complete it. That is why Paul could say to the Corinthians, God is faithful. But it is God who does it. It is God who begins it. It is God who sustains it. It is God who completes it. And that's why if you're here, you don't know the good news of Jesus Christ. I'm here to tell you that the punchline to this message is not I gotta try harder, I gotta, I gotta do more. No, you can't do this stuff. God in Christ on the cross did it for us. When he laid down his life in our place, he is the one who justifies. He is the one who sanctifies. He is the one who glorifies. And maybe you're here today and it feels as if you are suffocating under the load of life. God says, I have a life preserver for you. His name is Jesus Christ. Surrender your life to him. No, being a follower of Jesus does not incubate us from the problems of this life, but it gives us someone who walks with us through them. His name is Jesus Christ. So Father, we glory in your name today. We thank you for your church. In our current cultural moment where so many people are giving up on the body of Christ, God, we renew our vows. We renew our commitment. Just a few moments, even in the taking of, of the bread and the wine, it is a sacrament, Lord God, where we not only give thanks, we not only give thanks for all that you've done for us, but we do it not as individuals, but as a local body of believers, understanding that your church is your plan A for the world. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.